Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Tensions drop in Ukraine and global stocks charge higher. President Xi talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin and the NPC gets underway later this morning at 9 o'clock. In market action, Wall Street surges to record highs and bond yields spike as investors dump bonds for stocks. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note jumped 10 basis points in this latest session. That hasn't happened in at least six months. Here's what investors are pondering. Where's this crisis going to go? Where are we going next? Um, is, uh, is this it and it's just going to be in the status quo? Then this story's over. Or is there going to be other twists and turns that are coming in the nether days and weeks ahead that are going to royal markets all over again? That's Jim Bianco from Bianco Research. He then goes on to answer his own question. I would probably bet that there will be other twists and turns. I couldn't guess what they were. But, uh, you know, we're getting into one of these modes. We've already been there already. It seems like every day we have a 150-point move. It's just which way is it? Is it going to be up today or down today? Uh, and it looks like we're going to have more of the same. We'll get to the numbers in just a minute, but again, record closes there for the S&P 500. In our featured segments this morning, we'll be taking a look at the NPC with Patrick Shovanek from Silvercrest Asset Management. Um, And we'll also be looking at investment-linked assurance schemes. That's a generic term that applies to savings plans, investment-linked plans, and fund plans with a lock-in period. Jasper Moisevic from the SCMP will join us for that discussion. And we'll be taking a look at the Animal Spirit with Stuart Oddcroft at City Investor Services. And speaking of the animal spirits, uh, in Asian markets now, the Nikkei up 195. That's a gain of 1.3% today, and that's just in the first few minutes of trading. In Australia, the ASX 200 up 43 points at 54.55. In Seoul, the Kospi moving up about 1% as well. Okay, a quick closer look at Wall Street, and then we'll bring in our guests. Stocks up, as we mentioned, the S&P 500 rebounding to get up to a record close. Comments from Vladimir Putin suggested that the Ukraine crisis would not immediately escalate. The S&P 500 jumped 1.5% to 1873. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 227 points to 16,395. And the Nasdaq was up to its highest level since April of 2000. And as I mentioned, the yield on the 10-year jumping from 2.6% to 2.7%. We say good morning first to Stuart Aldcroft, Senior Advisor at City Investor Services. Stuart, good morning. Good morning, Brian. How would you read the mood at the moment? Oh, very jumpy. (laughs) Um, I'm glad you referred to the animal spirits, though. Thank you very much for associating me with that. Um, It's just that I think... Are you a bull or are you a bear? (laughs) Well, that's that's the question, isn't it? I remain actually relatively positive on markets, particularly um, uh, a few selected markets, surprisingly. Um, I think we've seen the um, uncertainty that we've had in Ukraine cause a, a, a bit of a buying opportunity on Monday, which might be too late by Thursday, if you like, because uh, markets are moving really quickly these days. Mr. Putin said that he is not considering taking uh, control of Crimea. That comforted some investors. And he said that he would only send troops into Ukraine in an extreme case, although he did not deny that he might do it. He simply said it would come only in an extreme case. Uh, Is that enough to lead to this much bullishness? Depends on whether you believe him, really, doesn't it? 
Um, the, the question is that he's already sent troops into the Crimea, which is part of Ukraine, um, and, and whether at this point he will hold back and, uh, uh, and stick at that point, which would appear to be where he will stick. And uh, I think from this point on, we maybe see a, a bit of settlement, a lot of argy-bargy, and uh, uh, all the politicians will get on their high horse and say, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, uh, and I think he will recognize there are a few threats out there to him. Conditions in the U.S. economy seem to have improved a little bit here of late. I know you've been a bull on the U.S. However, they are at record highs. Um, do you yes. still feel that energetic? Yes. Well, you know, every time you invite me on this program, it seems to be the day after another 100 or 200-point rise in the markets. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, if we could get the timing a little better, then maybe it would be more, more interesting. Uh, yes, the markets are good. Um, they are seeing recovery, and, and, and yes, there are very positive signs out there. Uh, there are going to be a lot of negative things from time to time. But overall, um, there is nothing to believe that the markets will take a, a, a 10 or a 15-point dip again in any time in the next uh, 12 months. And it's not just the U.S., although the U.S. is still leading. Um, Europe is coming from much lower bases than, than, than the U.S., and therefore I think the European markets are also very attractive. Here in Hong Kong, we're not even close to all-time highs, but we have been almost outperforming here of late. In fact, yesterday, we saw a nice turn in the market early when a lot of the rest of Asia was still red. Yes, I think the market reacted very quickly to a, a more peaceful position in Ukraine than was expected. And um, But as you say, the, the Hong Kong market hasn't really done terribly much. It's, it's really been um, range-bound, not exceeding 23,000 on one end and not dipping much below 20,000 on the other end over the last 12 or 18 months. Uh, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that China stocks or China-related stocks represent more than half the index these days. And that in itself is probably not terribly reflective of what a lot of the Hong Kong companies are doing. Okay, I want to play a clip here and get you to comment on that. We go back to Wall Street first. In fact, if you don't mind just staying with us uh, for the entire program, lots to talk about this morning, the NPC coming up as well. Uh, In terms of stocks in the U.S. being at all-time highs, uh, Dave Costin at Goldman Sachs says that we may see a correction or, as he puts it, a downdraft in American stocks. Well, we've had a major drawdown that took place in uh, late January, early February, around 6%. Uh, we've had a sequence of polar, the polar vortex and some pretty disappointing economic uh, data. I think you'll look at uh, first quarter earnings results that will come in April, early part of May, uh, maybe weak given the economic uh, data was pretty weak in the first quarter, so those results will be reflected. So there's a series of, uh, of you know, modest uh, hiccups that we're seeing, and I anticipate the market will be climbing towards around 1900 at the end of this year, which is a, a modest return from the current level. Yeah, we're at 1873, so not much of a change from here. But it's an interesting point. We had bad weather in the uh, December, January, early February period, and the earnings will probably reflect that when we get to those in April and May. Yes, and, and these dips are good for the market, uh, uh, particularly those that are more active, because every time you see a dip, people question whether the market has got somewhere further to go. And it has got somewhere further to go, so so it re- sort of re-emphasizes the need to be in the market and, and be doing something positive. Okay, does it worry you at all that bond yields, uh, you know, other than today, they jumped a little bit today, but bond yields had been trending uh, rather steadily lower in the United States, and, and some people would probably argue that that's telling you something, that the stock market is not. They trended lower quite recently 
on account of the Ukraine position, I think people were trying to go for a safe haven. Um, but that hasn't really um, meant too much, as it were. I, I think we're looking at probably a rise in yields, um, probably by the end of this year, as, as the, the, the taper eventually ends. Okay, as I mentioned, stay with us, because we want to bring in Patrick Chovanek uh, from uh, Silvercrest Asset Management, the chief strategist there. And that is to have a short discussion about the NPC getting underway this morning. Patrick, good morning to you. Hello. Good morning in Hong Kong. Good day to you, sir. Uh, I guess uh, uh, you are, you're on the East Coast, I would take it, right? I'm in New York. That's oh, right. You're in New York. Okay. Um, well, we've got the NPC getting underway this morning. Lee Kachan speaking. Uh, analysts and investors, of course, will be watching very closely for any market-moving news. Are you expecting any fireworks at all from the NPC? Well, this is really put-up-or-shut-up time for the Chinese leadership, you know, it's this really marks about a year and a half uh, into the new leadership being actually in charge. And uh, uh, they've been talking about reforms. They've been talking, Li Keqiang in particular, has talked about the very urgent need for reform. In fact, uh, last NPC, he said that reform would be painful, like slitting our wrists. Um, and, but, but nevertheless, it was something that needed to be done. And, and a number of ideas have been put forward, of course, most notably the third plenum document, which outlined a whole host of, of uh, Proposal 60, I think, but not so much implementation so far. And, and what people have said in the Chinese leadership is wait for the National People's Congress. Uh, you'll get more details then. So now we'll be expecting those details and, and some concrete implementation soon. Have you been disappointed so far in uh, the slow implementation? Well, I, 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 it's not unexpected um, because the, the, the wheels of Chinese leadership do uh, grind slowly. Having said that, I think that it is worrisome given the urgency of uh, the need to shift gears in the Chinese economy. And I think we've seen that reflected in uh, the tensions within the, the pressures within the banking system. Uh, not only did we have, of course, last June uh, a seize-up in the interbank lending market, but we also saw that in December again and flowing into January. Uh, we've seen steadily rising yields for a number across the board uh, for corporate bonds, for even government bonds, certainly policy bank bonds, uh, which is which is putting a crunch on, on the economy. And then we've also seen a steady stream of defaults and just today. Uh, we, we, we heard news that uh, uh, Chao Ri, uh, a solar company in Shanghai, is going to default on, on its bonds. And uh, that is really only the latest in a string of defaults or near defaults or defaults to get papered over somehow, but nevertheless are still a drag on growth. So there is a real urgent need to get on with, particularly in the financial sector reform, but across the board, really switch gears and and. and Maybe accept a lower rate of growth, but also put the Chinese economy on a much more sustainable growth path. What do you think among those 60 reforms are the most important? Well, the most urgent is the reform of the financial system. And the big dilemma here has been that if you introduce risk, because everyone in the Chinese banking system assumes that whatever they've invested in is essentially guaranteed by the government, and the government will not allow it to fail. And they have to reintroduce risk in a way that causes more efficient allocation of resources, um, and it 
makes people pay attention to the trade-off between risk and return. Uh, but on the other hand, doesn't cause the system to essentially uh, uh, fall apart. And, and so that's the that's the line that they've been walking. And so far, they've they've uh, erred on the side of really not doing anything or or papering over uh, losses and essentially uh, uh, guaranteeing losses. So La- last time you, know, you were on this the program, is something that needs to take place. The last time you were on the program, though, Patrick, you were sort of captain of the doom and gloom team. And you were really predicting uh, quite a negative outcome and, in fact, a blow-up, I think, this year. But we haven't seen it. So I guess you're wrong, huh? <laughs> Look, we have seen a slow-motion uh, hard landing in China since, really, 2012, when every every year people say they're going to hit their target, and every year they miss their target. And and it, it you, know, you have to, to have a market meltdown. I think I mentioned this last time. To have a, mention, a market meltdown, you have to have a market. And there are a lot of ways in which they can distort outcomes. But it only prolongs the pain. And I think we're going to continue to see uh, a, a growth squeeze, the, the kind that we've seen over the past two years. And I think that we're going to continue to see the, the risk of things really falling off the rails. Now, maybe they can contain that by essentially transferring losses onto the government's balance sheet or the implicit balance sheet, but that doesn't really help in getting the Chinese economy back on the right track. Okay. I've got another guest, Stuart Aldcroft, generally a bit more sunny than you. Um, Stuart, could you, uh, could you take on Patrick and uh, describe why some of these reforms uh, will happen? And, you know, they are taking baby steps, but... Uh, uh, you know, what we've seen so far, we've seen the renminbi, um, you know, start to fluctuate a little bit up and down. We've seen uh, free trade zone announced in Shanghai. We've seen some modest reform on the social front with allowing people to have more babies. Uh, what's your view? Well, I think, you know, we have to accept that China is a managed economy. It's uh, growing. Its rate of growth may fluctuate. It's, what, 7.7 at the moment, down from the 8% target it had a couple of years ago. It might maybe have a, a growth rate of down to 7% by the end of this year or, or, or thereabouts. Most of the rest of the world die for a growth rate like that. Uh, we're seeing the economy uh, progressing towards opening up. I think there's a very good chance that within the next three years the renminbi will become uh, pretty much convertible against all the major currencies around the world. The, 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 uh, my financial reforms are taking place they're not going ahead with big announcements. They're just taking place. And I think that the, the, the gradual opening up over, over a period of time is exactly what they're targeting. Okay, Patrick, uh, just a final counter, and then I'll let you go. Yeah, usually people, when they hear me say that China's growth rate is going to fall below, far below 7%, think that I'm saying doom and gloom. Actually, I'm saying that that should happen. It needs to happen. And if it doesn't happen then what it represents is more investment that really shouldn't be taking place. I'll give you an example. The Chinese central government has said that in areas like steel or cement or shipbuilding, uh, that there should not be more investment taking place, that there's already overcapacity. So uh, if that investment doesn't take place, then the growth rate is going to fall. That's a good thing in the long run for the Chinese economy, but it seems like because of this obsession with GDP growth, because of this obsession with hitting targets, they're afraid to do what needs to be done. Okay, Patrick, uh, tight on time. Thank you very much for joining us here.
Patrick Shavonik from Silvercrest Asset Management. And uh, one final question, I guess, um, before we get to Jasper, because we have an interesting discussion coming up on these uh, investment-linked assurance schemes. Um, and we also had a, a look at um, some industry developments. I'm not sure we'll have time for that. But if I could go back to Stuart, uh, uh, what, what are you most interested in seeing out of the NPC this week? Uh, if they can give any indication of timing, that would be great. But the thing that really would excite Hong Kong, particularly in the asset management business, if they if they finally tell us that they're ready to go with mutual recognition of Hong Kong-based mutual funds, unit trusts, because this we know they're all ready to go. We know that they're talking about it. But the NPC might be the, the, the platform with which to finally announce it. Okay, um, that, that's um, interesting. Uh, we'd love to see that. Uh, so we'll wait and see how that uh, happens. Uh, the time now is 20 minutes after 8 o'clock. I'd like to say good morning to Jasper Moisevich, business reporter at the SCMP. Uh, Jasper, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yes, uh, we wanted to look at these uh, investment-linked assurance schemes with you. They have been under fire. Uh, critics claim that the fees are quite excessive, Jasper, as you know, and that as a result, you get very poor performance. They're very complicated. The selling tactics are very aggressive. Most people don't exactly know what they're buying and in the end end up getting screwed. I mean, that's the claim from, from the critics. Others uh, from the industry, of course, would, would probably say that um, you know they provide a very good saving scheme over the longer run. Um, you've been doing some investigation of this, and, and um, what are some of the key... Um, points that you'd like to draw to our attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fees are a big issue, and uh, two points on that. One is the opacity, uh, the complication, as you've mentioned. Uh, people don't understand what they're getting into. And the other thing that's very critical is these insurance companies structure these products with this big upfront selling commission, which they pay to these IFAs, these financial advisors, and uh, these banks that sell these things. And it's this very powerful incentive to sell this product to people. And um, what I don't think people understand is when they're being pitched this investment or this uh, product, why it's being sold to them, why it's being so aggressively marketed. I mean, you, you might think as a customer that it's because it's in your interest and it fits your needs. But what they might not be understanding it's be is because of this very large commission that's attached to it. And in the old days, didn't they spread out the commission for the the um, agent over the life of the of the scheme? Um, it seems like when I bought uh, Whole Life back in uh, the early 90s, uh, the guy who sold it to me said, uh, as long as you keep this policy active, I'll get a small commission. <laughs> well, there is there i mean i think these ls plans also have these so-called trailing commissions too i mean they pack in a lot of different commissions um and i'm to be honest Stuart have a better uh, uh understanding of this because he's of the insurance yeah I've, you know i've been in this game before brian um what you got is a commission up front plus a, a, a trail commission for the life of holding it yeah um, but I think the, the, the key issue, one of the, one of the key issues that we, we, we have to understand in certainly our Hong Kong market is that these products have a much lighter level of regulation than yeah. would normal mutual funds and unit trusts. So they're not regulated by the SFC. They're regulated just by the industry bodies. The insurance authority, yes. Yeah. And, and why is that so bad? Because uh, they are not looking as carefully at both the selling tactics – 
but also at the underlying investments. Where, um, because most of these products are using unit trusts or mutual funds around the world, that's fine. Those products are being regulated by the SFC or other organizations. Uh, but there are some of these products that are not being, not using those, those funds, uh, using unauthorized or un unregulated funds. And some of the uh, schemes, I, I think particularly the lump sum as opposed to the regular savings plan type schemes, have a much higher level of commission, many of them, than, than is good for the investor. Jasper, you and some of your colleagues uh, went out to visit some of these banks, right? And uh, you, you got these aggressive tactics put on you. Uh, what, what, what did you learn from that? I mean, were you able to understand what was in it? Well, I mean, I think the main thing that we learned from that is, and this uh, mystery shopping series was done uh, by a contributor called Nikki Burge for the SCMP, and it was very interesting. She went to a series of banks, and what they all did was they all tried to sell her these insurance products. So she went in and said, I'm looking for a retirement plan. I want an investing solution. Give me some ideas. And, you know, that could involve a lot of things. It could involve mutual funds. It could involve individual stocks, individual bonds. You know, there's a whole range of options out there. And what all the banks did was they sold them illas. Um, and as, you know, one might think, it's because they come with these very high commissions. And you say that those commissions are not transparent. The fees, it's not like a management fee on a mutual fund that's easy to see. It's very, very complicated. And, you know, we've tried to take the brochures and then break them down and explain them to readers. And they just defy explanation. Uh, we've even brought in once an IFA to look at this and explain it. Um, to kind of reverse engineer these things. And it, you just can't. It's impossible. It's just super complicated. IFA being an independent financial advisor. Correct. So after um, looking at uh, at her report and doing your own investigation, um, even as a journalist, would you advise people to steer clear? Well, as a journalist, I'm, you know, I have to avoid making opinions. I've been <laughs> instructed by my editors. I would say that there's some in this industry who definitely would advise that and uh, to be careful. I mean, I think it's fair to say you should always get independent advice. And by independent, I mean find someone who's not making commission from the sale of this instrument to tell you whether or not this is a good uh, commitment or not. Because one other important aspect of this is you could get tied up for 30 years, and it's a huge obligation. So the best thing is just look for one that's about five years or so, and hopefully uh, you can ride that out, and if you don't like it, get out. Yeah, and this is something that's been discussed in the industry, um, unbeknownst to a lot of consumers, is that there's a quite a strong feeling that good practice is just sell a five-year plan, because it's very easy to extend. You don't need to tie up people for 25, 30 years. All right, Jasper, thank you very much for explaining this to us. And we just wanted to sneak this in before the program wraps up today because we're looking at the NBC. We wanted to go deeper inside an industry. And RTHK's Chris Oliver caught up with Gordon Kwan at Nomura Securities and asked what he'd be focusing on. I would focus on how the government uh, will be tackling the pollution issue uh, and how to promote um, more adoptions of natural gas uh, as an environmentally friendly fuel. So I think uh, uh, we would see... Um, uh, reasonable uh, fuel pricing increases for natural gas, as well as subsidies being rolled out to accelerate the development of this uh, environmentally friendly projects. And because uh, Petro China owns China's largest natural gas resources, so we believe the company could be a big beneficiary of these pollution measures. In, in a recent note, you argued the point that 
PetroChina shares could rise quite substantially over the next two years as a result of these reforms. What kind of internal changes? You mentioned in your note a boost of efficiency and return on on capital would be uh, re-emphasized within the company. How, how would that be boosted by the reforms to come out this week? Well, uh, in the past uh, five years, PetroChina has built uh, many unnecessary refineries and petrochemical plants. And as a result, uh, China is awash in overcapacities on the downstream. And the return on capital of these projects uh, is very, very marginal. So this has dragged down the profitability of the firm versus global peers like ExxonMobil. Uh, so we expect uh, after the reforms are implemented, PetroChina will focus on shutting down some of the excess capacities, particularly in petrochemicals, and uh, focus on uh, more profitable projects of the upstream, such as exploration and development of oil and gas. You also mentioned in your note that the Beijing could lower some of the windfall taxes or windfall profit taxes uh, that are tied to the price of oil. You mentioned that they could be essentially the price of oil could be boosted by the government to $70 from the current $40 level. How, how would that have benefited PetroChina? Well, right now, um, oil companies have to pay an additional tax, uh, extra tax, in addition to income tax. Uh, if oil prices were to average uh, $55 or above. Uh, I think uh, you know this formula is outdated uh, because the cost per barrel uh, for oil is approaching you know $55 a barrel. So basically there's very little windfall you know for the oil companies. And this formula is discouraging oil companies from investing in some of the marginal oil fields which are critical to new supplies. So as a result, we believe this formula will be overhauled to reflect uh, you know, higher level of oil prices. So I don't think that they need to collect such taxes until when oil price is above $70 a barrel. Um, so this means an extra $15 of tax-free oil for the companies that they could reinvest in exploration and make China depend less on imports if they could succeed in finding more domestic oil. So at the end of the day, this would be good for long-term energy uh, security for China. And will these reforms also benefit some of the other big oil companies in China, such as Sinopec and uh, Sinoc? Definitely. Mm-hmm. And it will also promote the participation from foreign investors as well when they see taxes being lower in China for exploration. In, in your note, you mentioned Sinopec, but you didn't pay much attention to CNOC. Is Was there a reason for that? Or? Um, that's because CNOC uh, does not have any downstream exposure uh, like China. So the scope for overall improvement from all the measures that we have discussed will be less. So basically, Signal is already a very efficient company, while PetroChina is still very inefficient. So from an investor point of view, you want to find a company that is currently inefficient and that could become more efficient. Signal is already operating close to the peak of its efficiency curve and has very little room to improve. Gordon Kwan there from Nomura Security saying, buy PetroChina, not Sinook.
And that brings the program to a close today. We just leave you with market action uh, broadly higher. We see most of the indexes now up about uh, one to one and a half percent here in Asia. Gold falling 1336. No safe haven in play today. And oil prices 109.30. Let's take a look at the weather. We are expecting cloudy skies with some rain today. Low visibility and probably uh, continue for the next day or two. Cool and windy straight on through till the weekend. Back chat coming up next. Constitutional reform, the topic. The news with Samantha Butler. China has, for the third year, set its growth target at 7.5%. In his work report, which he's due to unveil at the National Legislature later this morning, Premier Li Keqiang has also said he hopes to rein in inflation and keep it at around 3.5%. Military spending will see double-digit growth at 12.2%, reaching 808.2 billion yuan. The annual session of the National People's Congress opens shortly, as Radio Australia's Stephen MacDonald reports from Beijing. The National People's Congress will kick off with a keynote speech from Number 2 leader Li Keqiang. Already this year's session has been overshadowed by the deadly knife attack from so-called Muslim separatists, which left dozens dead and more than 100 injured. This gathering is designed to show that the government knows what it's doing in all policy areas, so ethnic unity is bound to be 